Welcome to Straight from the Author, a podcast that gives you a front row seat as leading authors discuss their books at a Warren Public Library. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming tonight. I'm sure um, it's hard to be inside on a beautiful summer, well, almost summer um, evening. So I appreciate you being here tonight. I'd like to start by thanking people who've made and organizations that have made this talk possible. Of course, the Warren, no, excuse me. I'm, I, yes, the Warren Public Library, um, the Arthur Miller branch. Sorry, I was going to say the Warren Miller, but anyway. I really appreciate Amy Moss for inviting me tonight too and for um, co-hosting. Also, I'm grateful to Grand Valley State University where I teach linguistics in the English department. My students and faculty or colleagues there have been a part of my research journey the past 20, 21 years now. And the many participants in the project who've made this research possible, my friends and family, and of course you. It's a real pleasure for me to talk about my work with you and to hear your um, comments and questions at the end. My presentation will focus on the social and linguistic histories that have shaped Talk or English in the Upper Peninsula over the past hundred years or so. And I'll talk a little bit more about this um, as we go along, of course. So um, first of all, an important definition. I'm assuming you all know what a youper is, um, but here's a definition from the Merriam-Webster Collegiate Dictionary, which added the word in 2014. As you no doubt know, the name derives from the pronunciation of the acronym for the Upper Peninsula, UP plus ER -er, uh, for someone from the UP. Because youper is a well-known word in Michigan, you might be surprised that it wasn't until 2014 that it made its way into this popular dictionary. It all began with a Scrabble game, Yet it took 12 years and a persistent Scrabble player to get Youper Dictionary worthy. Steve Park solicited Merriam-Webster to include Youper beginning in 2002. His 12-year letter-writing campaign started with a Scrabble game where he wanted to use the word Youper, and his opponent said, nope, can't find it in any dictionary, you can't use it. So what Parks did was he started soliciting Merriam-Webster. And this was really smart because Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Edition is one of the most popular dictionaries. And finally, in 2014, after sending the dictionary, lots of the editors, much evidence that the word youper is used and that it's well known, at least in Michigan and in parts of the upper Midwest too. He sent them enough evidence and there was an editorial change of the dictionary that youper got in this dictionary. You can find it online in their Merriam-Webster Collegiate Online Dictionary, right between the words Yoohoo and Yorba Linda, which is a city in California. It wasn't until though the mid 1970s that the word youper was popularly used in the UP in, in print. It's important to realize that although youper dates from 1975 in print, it had to have existed well before that in spoken language and everyday conversation. Words have to exist in conversation, spoken language, or sign language, if people are using American Sign Language, before they appear in print, except for maybe some technical terms. Um, those would maybe only be in print, but Uber is not a technical term, and it, we know it existed in spoken language before 1975. These examples are also important because they show this connection between the name for the people, Uper, the place, as well as some linguistic features. 
also important because it shows how there are attitudes attached to what it means to be a youper and what it means to sound like a youper. You can see the attitudes about what it means to be a youper in 1982, the 1982 example, where sociologist Michael Lukanen, he's a professor at Northern Michigan University and a filmmaker, he wanted to make a film and call it Youpers, but there was a lot of resistance, um, especially from older members of the community. So instead he named his film Good Man in the Woods. In the 1980s, we start seeing connections between the dialect and Youper. So say ya to the UPA. You might have seen this bumper sticker and I'll show you an example of it later on. And this is interesting because Jack Bowers, um, a resident of Marquette, he made this bumper sticker in, re in response to a Michigan, a state of Michigan tourism campaign that left UP off its maps, some of the maps. In 1986, there's a band, the Youpers, that's what they're called now. They um, originally were called the Youpers. So something happens in the 1980s where there's, although there was a recognition of the dialect before the 1980s, we start seeing this in print too. And we start seeing it more and more with tourism. Um, and I'll show you some examples as we go. I focus my research on the northwestern part of the UP from Marquette West, northwest, up through the Keweenaw Peninsula. I chose this area um, for two reasons. One, this is where I lived for five years when I was going to tech, and I have many friends who are local. And so I had contacts in the area when I wanted to do research. And I used the snowball technique where friends of friends, of friends, of friends. Uh, I interviewed, um, invited me to events, different places where I could observe and collect data. But more important, this is where the stereotypical Uper and Uper dialect um, is found. Now that's not to say it's not in other parts of the UP, but especially because of isolation, you'll find the dialect um, perhaps what you might say stronger in this area than you might see, see uh, here in Sault Ste. Marie, for example, or Newberry. And part of that is because of isolation. Um, it's a long distance um, from other parts. Um, if you go up to Copper Harbor or Houghton or even Marquette. Um, also, Sault Ste. Marie has had a lot of influence from Canada in that way in English. I'm particularly interested in how the idea of a dialect has developed over time through social and historical events, such as immigration and language contact between English and languages of Ojibwe, the indigenous people, uh, but also with immigrants. And I'll talk about more of that. Economics, economic factors like mining, agriculture, timber, and of course, tourism that I've mentioned, as well as language attitudes that we have and that we reinforce through media, TV, movies, social media posts, memes, jokes, conversations with family, friends, and coworkers. This evening, I'll explain that the dialect, its words, sounds, and grammatical structures are a result of these social and um, social factors and historical events that continue to draw people to the region. There are five main um, reasons why the dialect has emerged the way it has. Now, the, there are other reasons too, but these are the major ones. And to understand what makes a dialect a dialect, it's really important to know its history. The history of English in the Northwestern part of the UP is relatively recent compared to other varieties of English found throughout the United States. It wasn't until the mid 19th century 
that English speakers regularly visited and then inhabited the region. And this is specifically Marquette on up through the Keweenaw. There were English speakers in other parts of the UP well before that. The dialect's recent history combined with the area's isolation, the people who've immigrated to the area, where they've settled, who they mix and mingle with, the languages that they've spoken, these are all factors that have shaped and then maintained the dialect and its distinct features. These five major factors have helped um, develop the variety in the way that it is today. Geography, I mentioned isolation. Historical events in the late 1800s and early 1900s, such as the French-Prussian War and World War I that pushed people toward other places, including the UP. Language contact between speakers of English and other languages, including Ojibwe, like I mentioned, um, Italian, Polish, German, Canadian, French, Finnish, um, and I should say Ojibwe is also known as Anishinaabemowin, and many other languages as well. Economic factors, including land and mining, and not only iron and copper that we're familiar with, but also gold, silver, and graphite. Agriculture, especially strawberries and potatoes, dairy and beef cattle, shipping, commercial fishing, and tourism. And language attitudes, what we think of as good and bad English. I wanna step back in time here a little bit now and talk about the history in a nutshell. Um, for the last 5,000 years, Ojibwe have lived seasonally in the UP, yet it wasn't until the 1600s that French missionaries, French Canadian voyagers, and European explorers regularly visited the area. Over the next century, expeditions were made to investigate the rich iron and copper deposits, and this led to a determined effort to mine the region. Discovery of the world's largest deposit of native, native copper in 1842 drew thousands specifically to the Keweenaw Peninsula. And from 1840 through the early 1900s, it was a booming copper and timber mining region, or well, copper mining and timber region. As a result of the copper boom, the region became known as the copper country. And you might know it as with that name too. Most of the adults were in some way connected to mines and the mining industry. The majority of those that came to work in the mines and related industries, such as logging, which was not only necessary to clear the land to get at the rock beneath, but also for framing. And framing was above ground as well as um, below ground, railroad ties below ground as well as above ground, and of course housing and other buildings that were needed for this po um, growing population. Um, and in fact, timber was also used for um, charcoal, for um, the iron mines, and for the kilns to um, melt down the iron. And in fact, today, timber is still one of the major industries of the Upper Peninsula. Because of these industries and the promise of prosperity, Marquette and the Copper Country drew people from far and wide. Finland, Sweden, Norway, Ireland, Cornwall, England, Italy, especially the Piedmont region, France, Germany, Canada, China, and what was then called the Austrian, Austrian Empire. And today that would include Slovenia and Croatia, among other countries. In addition, people resettled from the Midwest and the East Coast, especially Boston, Massachusetts. Um, those that resettled from the Midwest and the East Coast typically did not work underground, but worked above ground. They tended to be mine officers and managers and, and other professionals. In addition to being pulled to the region, historical events such as war and famine pushed people to the UP from Scandinavia, Finland, Great Britain, Central and Eastern Europe, and beyond. 
While some people settled in rural areas, others were attracted to larger towns like Marquette, Houghton, Hancock, Ontonagon, with the promise of prosperity earned from businesses and shops, mining and agriculture. And collectively, these industries, education, um, medical, there weren't big hospitals at that time, but we needed, they needed doctors, of course, and nurses, caretakers. Um, all of this in the commerce were needed to sustain the burgeoning population. The growing population and seemingly endless supply of copper and iron continued to draw laborers, merchants, artisans, teachers, and others to the region through the early 1900s when production slowed and immigration restrictions curtailed or limited people of certain nationalities from entry into the U.S. And that was true. There was a 1980, or yes, 1924, there was an immigration restriction. In fact, there, um, Italians and Finns were two of the groups who were restricted. There were many others. With the new arrivals came many languages, of course. For example, the group of Norwegians that you see in this photo with their cute little dog, they no doubt spoke Norwegian, but they might have also spoken Swedish and or Finnish because there was a lot of um, migration between Norway, Sweden, and Finland with agricultural work and other kinds of, of labor. Heritage languages, or the languages that people bring with them and are spoken in the home, um, are, and these, the related cultural practices were maintained through interaction at home, of course, in neighborhoods, rural communities, social organizations, for example, Finn Hall, uh, Italian Hall, and through church services. For example, in Calumet alone in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there were several language-based Catholic churches. Um, for example, St. Anthony's was a Polish-speaking church. St. Joseph's was a German-speaking church. St. Louis was a French-speaking church. And Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary was Italian. And St. John the Baptist was Croatian. Calumet school records from 1908 show that there were students from over, over 40 nationalities. And we can imagine that among these students, they spoke at least half as many languages. More evidence of a multilingual community also include Houghton Hancock newspapers that were printed in six different languages throughout the early 1900s. Because the majority of people who settled in the area were not native English speakers, they typically learned an accented English from other non-native speakers. And as people mixed and mingled and their languages came into repeated contact with English, a new variety of English took shape. These languages affected the sounds, the vocabulary, and the grammar that collectively shape what we recognize today as Eupertalk. Out of all of the languages spoken in the area, Finnish has had a significant effect on English, especially in the northwestern part of the UP. The influence of Finnish on English has been significant for three main reasons. One, Finns were the largest group to immigrate, and they were the last large group to immigrate. Whereas immigrant languages were typically are typically lost by the third generation in a family, and that's true today as it has in the past, um, where the, the first generation will speak the heritage language and sometimes be bilingual. The second generation is typically bilingual, and by the third generation, the family is, or those kids would be monolingual or those grandkids would be monolingual. Finnish was different. Finnish was maintained for four and five generations, and in part because unlike the majority of other immigrant um, languages, uh, German, Norwegian, Swedish, Italian, French, Finnish isn't related to English, so it's more difficult for Finns to learn English. When languages are related, people can transfer in ways 
way, um, vocabulary and grammatical structures that's not so possible with Finnish and English because they're not, um, the two languages aren't related. A third reason outside of they were the largest group, uh, language was maintained for four and five generations and that Finnish isn't related to English is that Finns tended to be literate. And this is rare for laborers that immigrated in the late 1800s, early 1900s. But Finns tended to be literate, in part because in Finland, if you wanted to get married, you had to be literate. Also because the Finnish alphabet, if you know the sounds that go with the alphabet, unlike the American or English alphabet, not the American alphabet, or the alphabet that we use for English, the Latin alphabet, it's English is not a C and say language, but Finnish typically is. So it's a little bit easier to be uh, literate in Finnish than it is um, in some other languages like English. This long contact between Finnish and English shaped the sounds, words, and some of the grammatical structures of the local variety and thereby characterize again, what we recognize as the UP dialect. I wanna shift now into talking about how language contact has affected some of the sounds or phonology. And phonology is a word for this, the system of sounds, how sounds work together. And this just isn't um, the effects of Finnish on English, but other languages as well. And um, these sounds also have changed over time. Um, as society changes, language changes, and that includes not just the vocabulary, but sounds. And I'm going to show you a short video after this. And you will hear examples of all four of these. So the t two th sounds, the the for there and this and both, the th and both or th and through, you'll hear those pronounced, uh, the, the first one, the, as dare and this as dis. And sometimes this is known as dare them those for there them those. And this isn't unique to the UP. You hear it in Wisconsin, you hear it in Louisiana, you hear it in Singapore, you hear it all out throughout the world where people speak English as a second language or where there's been language contact like in the US and people um, have this substituted d for the the. Now there's two sounds that often get substituted for the um, th sound or what we call the voiceless th, like on both and through. So you'll hear both pronounced sometimes like both. And that uh at the end is a glottal stop where there's a stop, the air comes up through your throat and stops. You hear it in Batman and button, the way I say Batman and button. And uh-oh, you can actually try that yourself. If you say uh-oh, you'll feel your, feel your, your um, Adam's apple jump up and down and that's where the air is coming and stopping. So that would be one example. Another example would be sometimes people substitute a t sound or a t sound for that th. So you might hear people say true um, for through. Some, in some dialects, not in the UP, some people will substitute a F, an F sound. So birthday, for example, I've heard when I lived in Kentucky, people might say birthday, some people do there instead of birthday. You also hear consonants T, P, K, or the, represented by T, P, and K. When that's a final syllable or a consonant in a syllable, like a yet, winter, last, you'll hear those stressed. And this is an example of language transfer from Finnish, and Finnish stresses these three syllables. Two vowel sounds, or actually three, and the last example there, the fourth one is actually a diphthong, but we won't get into that right now. You'll hear the ah sound in this video as lower and back in the mouth. And what that means is the tongue is lower in the mouth than where, when I say that, it'll be that. Uh, last, where I say last, you'll hear last. 
and laugh will sound more like laugh. And you, so pay attention to those. Um, and the first man, there's two men speaking in the video. And the first one will say, you'll hear him especially say laugh. This ow and I, like in the word down and highest, we say that they're raised. And they're, that means the tongue is raised in the mouth. And you'll hear, um, and it raised because the these diphthongs, it's two vowels that work together. The first one, actually, that w, that W is not a vowel, I know. But there's a raising that goes on, and sometimes it's even called Canadian raising. The vowels in the UP are more closely related to Canadian vowels and how they're pronounced than any other vowels. People often think that Finnish has affected the vowels, but it's Canadian English. And there's another linguist at Grand Valley, Will Rankinen, who has studied this, the vowels in particular. Um, so the raise, you'll hear down and highest, where I would say down and highest. Um, and so listen for those, and hopefully this will work. Um, let me play this. It's 12 seconds. You'll hear two men speaking, and so you can listen for these examples that I just played for you. Oh, I like to play on My scoreboard just broke down, so I got to fix that. Yeah, the hard part uh, is controlling the roof off all the time. You know, last year I fell off of it, and you know, with the snow there, it, it, it's a cushion, you know, and you fall in it, and it buries you, and, and you just lay there and laugh, you know. So far, this is not a normal winter. It's one of the highest snow levels I remember for this time of year, but it's going to be fabulous for the businesses that depend on the snow. So, um, but in those, you probably could pick out some of the examples and maybe some other examples as well. Um, but it's interesting too, because why is it some sounds like the do for dare dem does or there and this is dare and this, why has that stayed, but the SH, S substitution hasn't? And that's a mystery. We don't know why some sounds change and some um, and sometimes others disappear. It's not always clear um, why these kinds of features main are maintained or why they leave. What's interesting to me is that some dialect features actually become stronger over time or even get revitalized as people move into an area and pick up on what they're hearing. Those sounds um, pronunciations might get stronger over time. And we have to remember that dialects like language anyway changes over time, it has to. As we change, society changes, um, and, and these changes represent language change or dialect change, not um, dialect death. Dialects do die, um, but more often they change in ways that make it seem like what was, uh, how things were pronounced originally have faded away. The local pronunciation of sauna, or sauna, excuse me, is another example of language contact between English and Finnish, and no doubt other European and Scandinavian languages um, that share this pronunciation, like Swedish, Norwegian, German, and so on. We've seen some pronunciations change, like Kausit, right? Here's an example of one that's been maintained, very much like der dem dos, der dem dos. Sauna has been maintained, and this example is what we call a shibboleth. It's an identity marker. There's a local pronunciation, sauna, that's different than how most Americans pronounce this word, sauna. And this linguistic identity marker shows who's an insider and who's an outsider. And in this set of billboards that were outside of Ishpeming in 2015, we see the shibboleth contrasted with sauna, so sauna with sauna. It's also interesting how the insurance company uses this shibboleth in this contrast. Here, the local pronunciation sauna not only symbolizes a local identity, but positive meanings associated with being local. 
trustworthy, honest, reliable, people who understand you and understand your insurance needs. So I think it was really smart what they did there. So local ways of speaking um, and everyday language use by way of vocabulary also provides a lot of evidence of language contact and a window into the area's social and linguistic past. Here, for example, the dialect's lexical features or vocabulary reflect various languages that have come into contact in the region. In addition to sauna, we've borrowed sisu and nisu and sauna makara, or in the UP people, UP people pronounce it sisu, um, and you can see some of those in the food words. Cornish English gave us pasty and bush and bloody, and perhaps a as in beautiful day, a, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. Canadian French speakers gave us chook and guitar and make wood. Irish English gave us the plural yous for you, um, which we don't have a plural for, so we add the zother for yous. And Ojibwe or Anishinaabemowin gave us many place names and direct translations of place names, as well as the word choppers um, for mittens um, and a specific kind of mitten that the flap comes off and exposes the fingers. In fact, foodways and place names provide some of the best evidence of an area's social and linguistic history. And you can see some of the other food names, for example, German, Slovenian, uh, Croatian, bakery, and pavatica, respectively. These are just a few examples, and I'm sure if you're familiar with the UP, um, you might be able to add to the list. On this map, we see some other examples of vocabulary, lexical features, and phrases um, that are recognizable as youper talk. What's interesting to me is that while some of these vocabulary words or linguistic features are recognizable and you see them on t-shirts and hats and coffee mugs like sauna and a and swampers and choppers, other words like bakery that you see over in the eastern part of the UP aren't recognized as something local or something unique about the dialect. But I have evidence that bakery is used. <laughs> um, and I've heard it in conversation, but here's a sign from the Covington Music Festival. And there was a food um, booth here with, from Lowry's Pasty Shop. And they say, all bakery fresh from Lowry's Pasty Shop. Bakery here is the baked goods themselves, not the place where the baked goods are made. Bakery is a direct translation from German, and you find that in Milwaukee and other German settled areas. And you heard me um, say earlier, there was a German speaking church in Calumet. Calumet had a lot of German speakers um, in that area. And there were other German speakers um, too, partly because of the Austrian empire. Now, in addition to words like bakery that don't get recognized, there are some words like pank that's also interesting to me because many UP residents, specifically those from mining towns, recognize the word, use it, and understand that it's part of the local dialect. And oftentimes they'll even claim that it's unique to the UP. Pank means to pat down or make compact. And for example, panking snow to make a path or panking berries in a bucket to fill it to the brim or miners panking blasting powder in a hole. And that's actually some of the first evidence we have of um, the pank, pank used in the UP. Even more significant is that many people in the UP use pank and like I said, mention or think that it's unique. But if you look at this dictionary um, entry from the Dictionary of American Regional English, you'll see that it's chiefly in Northern Michigan and this means the UP, but also Pennsylvania and upstate New York. What these three distinct regions have in common is a history of mining and a history of the same immigrants 
Norwegians, Danes, Swedes that you see here at the beginning. It says compare Norwegian, Danish, and Swedish, similar words. And the word most likely came in from the languages of these miners, given these similar pronunciations, as well as some of the early evidence we have. You'll notice that entry begins with perhaps, it's a blend of pack and spank, but compare these words. We're not really sure where it comes from, but we know it exists. In addition to the dialects, um, vocabulary and sounds, language, also, language contact has also affected the syntax or the grammar um, and grammatical structures. We don't mean the do's and don'ts when we talk about grammar and linguistics, but the actual phrases, um, how words are ordered, how phrases are put together. In these first two examples, um, you see Finnish-English contact. And the third example is from um, contact between English and three languages. Um, we're not quite sure which one again, um, but I'll talk about that in a minute. The first example are illative phrases. These are prepositional phrases that indicate movement to or toward a place. They often emit prepositions and also articles, a, an, and the. And this is a result of contact between Finnish and English, what we call language transfer. And you've heard me use that phrase already. Um, when structures from one language are transferred directly to another one, um, Finnish doesn't have prepositions. And it's like near or in or at or by or among. And instead, it uses suffixes or endings on the ends of words to indicate those same kind of locations. And so you'll hear this in some places in the northwestern part of the UP where people might say, let's go mall or I went post office. Finnish also doesn't have the articles a, an, and the. So instead of let's go to the mall, you hear let's go mall or I went post office. I, got, um, I received an email from a friend at one time who said, I went casino last night. So it's not just in spoken language, but informal written languages too, like you might find in an email or a text. A and hey, the last example here, they demonstrate how seven several languages, Ojibwe, Cornish English, Canadian French, could be the source of a word or a grammatical structure. And it's no surprise because all three of these languages have similar sounding word that you see here listed, as well as similar sound or similar meaning and use of that word. We find language change as well here because um, older speakers use a and younger speakers tend to use hey. And not true for everybody, but there's a trend. And there was a student at Michigan Tech who uh, had done a study and found that younger people were using hey more um, than older people, older people using a, and partly because they don't want to sound like older people. So there's a shift there. And it's probably not conscious, right? People aren't saying, I don't want to sound like old people. I'm going to use hey instead of a. It's some language change that happens um, through um, thought processes and ways that are not real or subconscious in ways. What's important is that grammatical features of the dialect, really any dialect, not just UP English, aren't bad English or improper. In fact, these are the rules that make UP English UP English and that they are grammatical from a linguistic standpoint, right? There is this idea of ungrammatical from a um, more popular um, perspective too. These are the rules that make the dialect the dialect. We know that when we hear, let's go mall, I went post office, hey, that's something unique here. These are some of the rules and we can then go back and explain why by looking at the history of language contact. 
So these are result of language contact. Um, it shows the history of the dialect and these are rule bound structures, what we would call systematic, right? And rules about what makes the dialect a dialect. One rules transferring from one language to another. Definitions of good and bad English are based on language attitudes rather than the grammatical rules that we could write up when we hear certain grammatical structures or see them in print, or when we hear the sounds and vocabulary, that would cons constitute the whole grammar, the rules that make up the dialect. But language attitudes are those, what we think of as good and bad English. I'm going to show you an example here from a university student um, essay that I received a copy of. And what you see here is um, how language attitudes can and do not only affect individuals, but the dialect from being spoken. And language attitudes can affect um, the, the longevity, let's say, of a dialect. I'll read it and then I'll talk about it a little bit. Three summers ago, while attending classes, I was sitting in class, listening to the professor read over the syllabus. She veered from the syllabus when she began speaking about the upcoming oral presentations. At this point, she pulled the class to find out how many Upers were in attendance. I looked around and no one raised a hand, including myself. So you know the student recognized other Upers in the class. I did this for three reasons. One, I was a freshman. Two, the class terrified me. And three, I was not going to be studied all term as if I were a dying species. She continued with a comment about Upers who attend the university by stating when they're giving presentations, I always feel so sorry for them. The class chuckled, agreeing that Upers sound funny and showed sympathy. About 10 minutes later, I left the class and almost left the university. This is a really good example of linguistic prejudice and linguistic prejudice and related language attitudes have real and lasting effects, especially for those who are labeled with speaking bad English or sounding funny like this student, whether it's a regional variety like Uper talk or a social variety that we might hear with African-American English or, or Hispanic English. For this student, the effects were significant. She dropped a class and almost quit school, almost dropped out of the university. Part of my interest in studying Uper talk and language variation and change in general is my belief that we can foster social understanding, respect, and compassion by creating language awareness, by understanding the history of a dialect and why a dialect is the way it is. The more we understand the history, uh, the languages that have come into contact, their effects on a dialect sounds and grammatical structures and vocabulary, the better we can understand the social and linguistic factors that have shaped it, and we can understand why people might sound the way they do. This understanding can lead us to know that dialects are that are sometimes seen as bad English or sounding funny or improper are actually rule governed. And we've seen some of the rules here. And these rules result oftentimes from language contact. We can also become aware that although the rules that make up regional varieties and um, dialects um, that are different from what we might perceive as American mainstream English, they're drift different rather than wrong or bad or incorrect. Unfortunately, the prejudice that is often attached to dialects and accents isn't grounded in linguistic fact, but instead on prejudice about the speakers. And we see that here in this example. Linguistic prejudice is a mirror of social prejudice. Anywhere in the world, if you wanna find out what dialects or languages sound funny or are perceived as bad, 
ask what groups are stigmatized and vice versa. If you wanna find out what groups are stigmatized, find out what dialects are stigmatized or seen as bad whatever language or bad English. We have to remember that all languages, all dialects are grammatical. The rules vary. That's why we call them in linguistics varieties of English. Sometimes we use dialect too, but we talk about them as varieties because it's a variation in that language, variation of the sounds, the rules that create the phrases, the variation of vocabulary. And as we've seen in the previous examples, history and interaction among people who live in the area are the key ingredients that have shaped varieties of American English. And here we've looked specifically at Uberta. We can see how attitudes um, toward dialects and perceptions about speakers are also significant factors in shaping dialects and their use. Now, while there are a lot of negative stereotypes about what it means to sound like a youper, um, and sometimes what it means to be a youper, at the same time, there's a great pride in being a youper and sounding like a youper. For example, in the UP, there comes a fierce pride from being local, as well as a do-it-yourself, get-by-with-what-you-have independence that's rooted in a history of very hard labor in an isolated place that has a climate that can be really difficult to live in. And this magnet, though, that I bought at a tourist shop reflects connections between identity, place, and language with proud, tough, independent at the bottom and mapping Uper right onto the outline of the UP. Reflected in the magnet is the most compelling reason for maintaining dialect differences, our identity. Our language is one of the most obvious ways that we mark who we are, where we're from, and where we've been. This includes not only our region, but our social economic classes, our gender, sexuality, race, age, ethnicity, religious affiliation, education, our occupation, all the different ways that we identify ourselves culturally and socially. Language is our badge of identity. How else do we show where we've, where we've been, who we are, who our families, who our neighbors are? And for this reason, dialects and language variation is here to stay. Of course, the dialects will change over time, they have to, as I said earlier, as society changes. As the linguistic landscape shrinks though, through our online and geographic interconnectedness, dialects are here to stay. These local ways um, of speaking remain our badge of identity and thus they have to be here to stay, right? So to conclude, how do dialects like Uper talking merge over time and through interaction through us? As we shape history, as we share our attitudes and beliefs about dialects and social media, conversations, as we interact with other people and our dialects and languages come into contact. As with any dialect, the sounds, the words, phrases, and sentence structures combine in unique ways to shape UP English. By knowing the history of UP English, we come to understand how people, place, and language are tightly bound together. My hope is that by understanding the history of Uper Talk, that you come to understand not only how and why dialects develop, but also that each of us have a role in affecting language change, as well as affecting language attitudes and perceptions about people who speak differently than you or I or other people. I also hope that this understanding leads you to an appreciation of the UP and UPERS if you already don't appreciate those things, as well as for language variation and change in general. Thank you. So we have some time for um, questions. So I have a question. So how long has um, the U UP and UPER talk been um, something that you, obviously it's been a long time that you've been interested in it, but how long 
did you, did it take you to write the book? About 10 years <laughs> in fits and starts. So, you know, I have a day job teaching, which is actually a day and night job and weekend job sometimes too. But um, it took me 10 years and I, I started collecting data in 2000. And so collecting data, and then I collaborated with some people um, and we wrote some papers and um, I had written several journal articles and newspaper articles, some for popular press like newspapers and some for academics and linguistic journals. But um, the, the book was really a compilation of those things. And then put into more, instead of writing something super academic-y, writing something that would be more for like a PBS kind of audience, an educated adult audience, um, or I don't know, teenagers, older teenagers probably too. That's so interesting. Um, Catherine asked, what made you want to study this subject? Well, I have friends in the UP, and when I was in grad school at Tech, we would get together, play music, share food, and talk, and of course, I had moved to the UP from Kentucky. I'm originally, you heard me say, or Amy say, I was from Columbus, Ohio, so I my dialect was different. My friends, some of them had moved to Texas in the 1980s for work and then back to the UP, and we just loved talking and sharing things, and I went to the library to see, what can I learn about the dialect? There wasn't very much published at all. And I thought, ha, when I finish school, I might not have said ha, but um, I thought when I get my job teaching and I shift my research to a new topic, I was studying and I still do language and gender, um, but I thought I want to research this. So I started collecting data and then was fortunate to work with some people and um, other linguists and um, developed it from there. So it was because of friends. And if you read the introduction or the acknowledgments in my book, there's one friend in particular who really, um, Kitty Bellick, who really um, in, influenced me, but also kind of encouraged me. So, oh, great question, Catherine. So in linguistics, um, there's a difference between a dialect and an accent. For I want to say everyday people, linguists are everyday people too. But um, outside of linguistics, usually we use those interchangeably. But in linguistics, dialect is not just the pronunciation, but the grammar, the vocabulary, where accent is only pronunciation. So if we talk about someone speaking with a French accent, for example, we're talking only with the, about the pronunciation. But if we talk about a dialect that's influenced by French, we would talk about the vocabulary and the grammatical structures, as well as the pronunciation. Okay, well, I guess, um, thank you. Thank you very much, Catherine. We appreciate your time and your book. And um, if anybody is interested and you're in the Warren area, we um, will be getting a copy. We don't have it yet from our uh, vendor, but we'll be getting some. So thank you thank so you. much. Thank you, Amy. I really enjoyed this. And thanks again for inviting me. Well, thank you for being here. We appreciate you. All right. Straight from the Author has been brought to you by MyWarn. To hear more podcasts like this, visit MyWarn.org. Again, that's MIWarn.org.